Good morning. It's great to see everybody. How many of you didn't know we had a stage underneath our stage? Like, what? Why did they do that? Years ago. But we moved it back, and now we're coming around as we're still working on finalizing a lot of our renovations. Thanks for being so patient with us. Parents, we're excited. The nursery now is fully open. We appreciate when um, I know the kids can get restless at times, and uh, thank you for taking them to those rooms. We have some wiggle rooms for the restless kids and um, parents as well to get a little restless. That's all open now. It looks so nice. I don't know if you got a chance to see it. The cafe's going to be opening soon. I think the patio entrance was open today. So things are coming around. Thank you for your patience through this season. We've been doing a lot of reno, and when you're doing reno um, while people are coming, we also get to hear all your opinions and feedbacks, the whole project. It's just great. It's great for everyone involved. But things aren't finished. And uh, in fact, now the stage is going to be going through its reno. So you're going to see walls coming down around the stage and things that still have to get wrapped up. But we just want to thank you for your patience with you. And um, as we've worked through this, it is, um, it's exciting to know that we're getting close. And please... Parents, also be thinking camps are here, so we'll make sure you're signing up. So I just want to take a minute to, to thank everybody for all those things as you're still adjusting to that. But now that the new sound and light and tech is in, and we hope it works all Sunday, um, we're excited to move forward. And I just want to thank you also for the warm and wonderful weekend you gave Voices of Mobile. They just could not talk highly enough of your new Bible and your joy and your generosity to them as a group. This is one of the most generous um, churches that they've ever attended this year. And so way to go, guys. It's awesome. It was a wonderful Memorial Weekend. We want to continue in the gospel of Mark. We've been marching through this book. It's the public ministry of Jesus Christ as we've been looking through these first eight chapters. And we're a bunch of sermons in now. As you scroll along these different sermons, we started with fishers of men and we noted how Mark leverages the word immediately. We also notice when Jesus looks at crowds, he doesn't look with annoyance. He looks with compassion. And the only way we're going to live that way is if he becomes greater and I must become less. We see that God has called us to extra mile living, not only one mile, but going the second mile. And we only deal with other people. We are to look at them with mercy, not like a fair I see. And then just this last time we were together, come to me. He's the only one who can bring restoration. So we come to the point, if you're reading ahead, we've had journals in each lobby as you come in that you can journal with us through the Gospel of Mark. You see we're coming upon the time when Jesus calls his apostles. Now, if I walked up to you with a microphone and these gigantic screens on either side on you and said, name the 12 apostles, how do you think you'd do? Uh, um, uh, um, uh, um right? Judas. Good, good, good. You got, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, um, I, 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 James, you know, you, you'd be yelling out different things, right? Like you could think of that, but, but some are more obscure and some are more obvious. But today we're going to talk about these chosen men of God. And so we'll call our message chosen. And it, and it makes me harken back to choosing different things. And one of those things goes all the way back to elementary school, and it was all definitely a part of my youth pastor years, and that was the game of dodgeball. Do you know how to pick a good dodgeball team? Do you know what, do you know what are some of the ingredients of a good dodgeball team? One, you want to make sure you got some people on your team who can throw the ball hard. I mean, they can chuck it. See, see, back in the day, back in the, I, I was raised in, um, I was a young kid in the 1900s back in that. And, uh, and we, had, we had real dodgeballs, that's what I call them. Like they, they took skin away when you hit. Like that, it was, they, they were awesome. But now we have gator skins, I guess, to make them sound tough. But, but um, these balls are still great and they're wonderful. And, and, and we would play these dodgeballs and we wanna get, you wanna get somebody who has a good arm, you know? Somebody, who, somebody can really chuck it and hit somebody and, and hopefully nobody back there on staff got hit. But somebody, somebody can really throw it, right? But, but you learn. There's guys who can throw it. Oh, they can chuck it really hard, but they're like tree trunks dodging a ball. 
I mean, they get hit all the time and they're always out or they blow their arm out by game three of the tournament. We need some longevity. And so you get some players who have a lot of agility and even speed, running up to the line and getting balls and, and, and some people who can flat out catch the ball. Because if you can catch the ball, then your players can get back in. In our youth group over the years, we put together some serious dodgeball games. And I remember some dodgeball competitions that I remember one specifically that ended with one of our youth pastors distracting the other team player and throwing it at their knees quick. It was a beautiful move and we celebrated before the refs knew what happened. Oh, we were so annoying, but we loved dodgeball. Would you be picked for a dodgeball team, do you think? You say, well, back in 1963, absolutely. Would you be picked for a dodgeball team? And some of you are thinking, I don't want to be picked for a dodgeball. I have no desire. You talk about dodgeball. I am not engaged at all with this opening illustration. And isn't it interesting? Because we do live in a society, and haven't we learned this? Can I speak to the adults in the room for just a second? You're forced to do things as a kid. Have you realized that we learn our lane and we live in it? And we avoid everything that sometimes can be difficult or we think we're going to fail at. How many people never reach the potential that they might actually bring to the table simply because they don't believe that they'd be any good at it? And how is inspiring it is when you hear people, even in a senior saint's home, going, I think I'm going to learn the violin. At the age of 84, absolutely, why not? You think I can't, Pastor Chris? Nope, I think you can. I'm just so inspired by someone saying, I got a pulse, I got a purpose, and I wanna keep growing and learning and discovering because we live in a society that's so afraid because of the effects of many different things of being laughed at or mocked. We stop taking risks and we stay out of the game. And sometimes the wrong people Stay out of the game because they could have been used in so much more ways. They just need somebody to come along and believe in them and want to use them and empower them. I had a chance to coach many different years in youth sports, even into high school sports. And I learned the power of an athlete knowing a coach believes in them. And I've learned the absolute emptying of power by an athlete who believes they're not believed in. And today, I wanna talk about being chosen. How good it feels to be chosen. How good it feels to be selected. I mean, can anybody hearken back to a moment in a movie where there are a bunch of little guys in the thing called Toy Story, and they were laying there and the claw would come down and the claw would lower and it would grab one of them and they go up and they go, you've been chosen, you've been chosen. I said, whoa, what a sermon illustration that is. You go, Pastor Chris, you, you, you need to study more if that's where you're at. <laughs> we celebrate being selected and chosen. And did you know there are biblical principles that can still inspire you today? Things that we can see in scripture from how God chose these guys and how he still is using people who are very ordinary to do extraordinary things. I pray we'd be willing to want to live for Jesus, even if it's uncomfortable. Today, we're gonna read about these 12 apostles, whether you can name or not, by the end of the day, you will. We're gonna be in the book of Mark. We're gonna be in chapter three, verses seven through 19. I'm gonna have a word of prayer and then I'm gonna read the text. When? Immediately. Immediately. Heavenly Father, use your word today to inspire us to live for you. Lord, we come to this place in a very discouraging world. Maybe some have stumbled in here with a, with a really difficult week. Maybe some are just exhausted and tired. It feels good to sit. Lord, may we just be here today and hear from you. And so Lord, if you would, remove the room of distraction. Humble our hearts to receive the word of God and allow your sacred text to penetrate our lives in such a way that we would walk out these doors differently because we visited this place. We pray these things knowing you are faithful, knowing you're good, 
and knowing your word of life is our only hope in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. In fact, scripture says that when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. When they heard all he was doing, they came to him. And I put in my notes, if you guide your journals, I put a great crowd. Now, now why did that stand out to me? If you look at the root word of great, excuse me, if you look at the word, great word of great, you will see that it's written in emphatic form. In other words, this isn't like, hey, man, this is such a great crowd today. That's not the idea here. It's not speaking of an emotion or a characteristic. The idea here is this is a massive crowd. Now, now when I was in high school and I'd be in church and stuff and the pastor would read a bunch of all these like geographic places, I would literally, totally check out. Any of you with me? But if I saw a map, I, I could refocus, Right? And so I want you to get a little bit better of feel of what's going on here by looking at geography, okay? Because listen, scripture is not some mythical tale. These are accounts with locations that we could even visit today if we chose to. And I want you to get a better feel so you don't just read a great crowd and go, oh, that's nice. There was a big crowd coming. No, 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 let, no, no, let me all you understand here. It says from Galilee, now, now, Fortunately, we got a screen now. I can come all the way up to. So Galilee, okay, and Judea. And all God's people go, oh, Judea, down in here. Wow, that's farther away, isn't it? See, it's one thing if I said, hey, guys, I was speaking in Telford the other day. And a great crowd came from Telford. You'd be like, that's great, that's great. And, and then some people came from Harrisburg. Really? You'd start leaning in. Yeah, and then there were some that came up from Tennessee. Jeez, how big, how big a crowd. What? Oh no, and some flew in from California. Oh my word, what was going on? And then we had some guests from Europe who heard about what was going on in Telford and came. You start really listening to this. You start thinking. And some of my mathematicians, some of my thinkers, some of my more concrete people are going, I don't know if Telford has the infrastructure to host a World Cup game. I'm not thinking that's possible. Are the restaurants ready for this? Are you all engaged now? Let's read the text again. From Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and all my scholars lean in and go, oh my word, do you realize what that means? Gentiles were coming? This is not just now the Jewish population. We have Gentiles coming. And then from Tyre and Sidon, they're coming from everywhere. Everyone is converging onto Galilee. Telford, if you will. You go pick on Perkesy. Okay, Perkesy, if you will. Everyone's gathering in. There was a great, emphatic, great crowd. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many that all who had diseases pressed around him just to, to touch him. And wherever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out. What, what, what'd they cry? You are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. What on earth is going on here? Can we envision this scene? This is an emphatic, great crowd gathered from everywhere around Jesus. And I made three notes. Here's one. Jesus says, get me a boat ready, lest they do what? Crush me. The root of the word carries the idea of fall on me. Like, get a boat ready because I'm going to get crushed otherwise. 
So if all of you have this idea that the crowds that followed Jesus, they usher were in, ushered in that door, they had greeters go, hello, nice to have you. And they came in here and a couple bodyguards were on the other side of Jesus and all this, this is not what's going on. Jesus is like, okay, guys, get a boat by the shore, um, lest they, um, um, I don't know, crush me. I didn't come in here today thinking I'd get crushed, but I do believe you guys could crush me if you chose to. Jesus was out there on an island in this crowd. And he says, have a boat ready. In fact, we see Jesus sometimes getting in boats and speaking out into the water, only sometimes just so they don't crush him. Why, why would they crush him? Look, look, I made this note. Because those with diseases were being pressed around. Now, now we kind of have this kind of unwritten code here that if you're sick, we'd like you to stay home. I want you to picture thousands of people with leprosy coming, diseases, all sorts of body disformment. I mean, just in a couple chapters before, we got four guys trying to get into a house and when they couldn't get in the house, you know what they said? Let's go to the roof. They rip open the roof and lower Jesus. So, so let me ask you about this crowd. Are you feeling this with me? Let me ask you this, dads. Can I talk to the dads for a minute? You got a 12-year-old girl and she is dying with a disease and you hear there's a miracle healer. He's up in Galilee. You pick her up. She can barely breathe. She's in your arms, dad and you're close enough, what are the chances of you going, I'm sorry, get out of my way? Real strong. Now add that times 20, and you got people coming at Jesus, and he knows this, and they're coming at him, they're thinking, if I could just touch him, if I could get my daughter's hand on his body, I got a chance, and they're coming at him, and they're coming at him, and they're not coming because they want to hear the good news, they want to get healed. Scripture says this, and I made a note of it. This last one is, here it is. And this one creeped me out the most. In that crowd, he didn't just have some haters. He didn't just have some people who were trying to catch him doing stuff on the Sabbath. He had the demonic realm coming up to him and crying out. The word can mean screaming. What a beautiful thought that is terrifying. They're screaming out what? You are the son of God. They're screaming at him and they're coming before him. You are the son of God. Many people have leaned into this and going, why are they doing this? Is it they're trying to get control? Did they possibly believe because a man in Adam, when he was given the ability to name the animals, he was given dominion over them? Is that why they were doing it? Were they seeking to get dominion over Jesus? Some have proposed, were they trying to bring chaos into the crowd? Were they trying to bring such a chaos where they hear this screaming and yelling and people charging at Jesus that no one can hear the message? Others have concluded, is it possible the demonic realm wanted to associate Jesus with his miracle so that he would be looked at as more of a majority? and not a true miracle hero, but, but somebody who is part of the demonic realm, or were they simply terrified of him? Church, stop reading your Bible like, oh, in a great crowd. It was a great crowd. It was a terrifying crowd. It was a loud crowd. It was a boisterous crowd, and it was coming at them. But Jesus knew how to navigate it. Every once in a while, I get a chance to consult people who speak at different levels. When you speak in front of crowds, there's different dynamics to every room and every crowd. You speak into a small group, that's a dynamic. People will talk back. You speaking in a larger room, people necessarily won't talk back, but they'll give body language, they'll give emotion, they'll give all sorts of other things. You speak in larger crowds, now there's lots of commotions and distractions and different things that play into losing an audience. You get into a larger crowd that's excited, you start wondering if you're gonna be okay. And so I've always used the principle, just a little side note, you better be ready to call AAA. I've learned this from Jesus. He said, have a boat ready. How many of you go, oh, he must be talking about Peter's boat. No, no. The word for boat, just this little dinghy boat or a little rowboat. What's Jesus doing? Something I think all leaders who speak to crowds could know. The three A's stand for something. See, AAA, you're like, what's AAA? Until you have 
teenagers driving your cars, then you start believing in AAA. And AAA, I'm going to do one, when you're speaking in crowds like Jesus was in, 1A, anticipate. Crowds have agendas. Anticipate them. Crowds have agendas. Tell communicators, Jesus understood that crowd had an agenda. You can go to a concert and the band knows the crowd has an agenda. They want to hear certain songs. And if they don't hear those songs, they're going to clamor for them until they're played. Sometimes bands leave their best, most recorded songs till the end. So the crowd does an extra cheer. And it's under the phrase, give the crowd what they want. But Bible preachers aren't always supposed to give the crowd what they want. They're to give the crowd what they need. And Jesus understood that every better. Crowds might have an agenda, but it's our goal as communicators of the word to give the crowd what they need. And Jesus was in tune with that and had a boat ready, even if he had to go out into the water to talk to them. The second is acclimate. Crowds have characteristics. You can have an excited crowd. You can have a dead crowd. You can have a very interested crowd, but you have to, as a communicator, acclimate to that crowd and to the environment you're in. Know when they're checked out. Know when they're checked in. Know when a point's getting across and understand when a point is not getting across. Keys to communicative techniques that Jesus shows in his scriptures. And then third, arrange. Crowds have tendencies. And Jesus arranged an exit strategy if this went against him. A few years back, our church hosted an NFL quarterback who was at the premiere of his career in Philadelphia. And he was a very sought after individual. And I was in the back rooms with him and we were navigating, he and his wife moving around the high school. And after he was done speaking, there was a police car ready outside to take him to his hotel. It was all laid out. We walked out the back doors and people were jumping out from around the trash cans just to try to get one last autograph. I thought, what an interesting life that at any moment you could be scared. I watched people beg him for money. I watched people talk to him for other things and just trying to get hold of him. This was just walking to a car 20 yards. What must the daily life be like of someone who is sought after so much? Jesus understood this and knew that when you communicate with crowds, you have to be able to get away. I call it AAA. He went up to a mountain, scripture says, and it was there he called him he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. It's as if there's a group of disciples headed up the mountain with him. And out of those disciples, he appointed, scripture says, 12. Who, and many believe this is a scribal note, whom uh, he also named apostles. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I found it very interesting, and I'm not sure I noticed it before, that amidst this moment of this great crowd is the same place where Jesus says, it's time for me to have an inner circle. It's time for me to call to myself an inner circle. And he calls them apostles. Does anybody know what the word apostles means? The word apostle means sent ones. But what Mark wants to go out of his way to do is help you understand that they were selected, chosen, picked, if you will. He says he called to him the, the best, the awesome, the super smart ones, the, the kind of socially aloof ones. No, no, he called to them whom he desired. Mark says he desired some and he called them. That call, it comes from a word kaleo or call. It's the same word we have in the word ecclesia. Does anyone know what that word is? The word is church. And ecclesia or kleo comes out of ek. Ek is a prefix to kleo, ecclesia. Ek means ex or exit. You look at our exit signs, that's the ek or prefix of ecclesia. So it means out of, 
You go out and exit, you go out of something. Kleo means to call. So it's to call out. Jesus called out of those people, people to himself. And these were apostles. This is very counter rabbinic pattern. Rabbis had students apply to learn a skill underneath them. Each rabbi had a certain trade or skill that they could specifically teach. And so students would apply, much like a job application. And the rabbi would select them based on their application. Jesus, membership into Jesus's crew was by divine election. He chose them. He called to them. And scripture says he appointed them. Very interesting word. Appointed means to create, to establish something. Mark is going out of his way to say Jesus called the apostles. Jesus appointed, created something. He chose 12. We see 12 in scripture with the tribes of Israel. And now we see 12 as what we are going to see is the establishment of the church, the called out ones, so that they, why did he do this? Well, scripture's not vague on the subject. Scripture says, so that they might be with him. Jesus wanted to be with them. And then secondly, so that he could send them out and entrust them with a message. He has this gospel, this amazing gospel message, and he's going to entrust the apostles with it. Parents, have you ever had your first babysitter with your precious children? You're entrusting a lot on that babysitter. That babysitter does not no idea how much and how important those children are. And so you do a little vetting on them. You make sure they know this. You got to feel like people that go, yeah, no, they're great. They're very responsible. They do a great job. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He goes and he appoints and he calls them. Based on what? Based on what? I mean, they're just a bunch of fishermen. What? So that he can invest into them. You see, the rabbis, they came to them for a skill. Jesus called them so that they could just be around him. Because when you're around Jesus, he's going to push you to do things you don't necessarily want to do. He's going to grow you in areas you didn't necessarily know you needed to grow. But he's going to maximize your potential. And he's going to take you places you didn't even know you could go. Why? Because you're with him. Oh, what a privilege. But I can't get around how much Mark is emphasizing that it was Jesus choosing them. In fact, John, one of the other apostles, he goes out of his way to quote Jesus. In case there's any question that maybe the apostles just, they chose Jesus, they believed and followed. But he says this, John says this, Jesus said to us, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. I moved first. I came and chose you. So who were these chosen? Who, who were these? Very interesting note about Mark's writing style. We know a few things. He writes with high level of urgency. We also know Mark always points out Jesus' emotions. He's very quick with that. But Mark does something here the other gospels don't do. He lists the 12 apostles excuse me, in groups of three. It's as if there was little groups in the other groups, as if they were closer to one another. And he lists them in three. Do you know who the first three are? This is his most inner circle. He chose Peter or Simon, James, and John. What do you know about these guys? Simon, a fisherman in Capernaum. I thought of an image that would help describe them best in my mind's eye when I read about them in scripture and I see them quoted in different things. Simon was waves. I just picture waves. This is the guy when Jesus said, who do they say I am? It's Simon who goes, you are the Christ. Simon immediately follows Jesus when Jesus calls him. And Simon is so passionate. One time, one time, Simon's in a room and Jesus begins to take off his sandals and wash his feet. And Simon said, do not wash my feet. And he said, unless I wash your feet, 
you will not enter the kingdom of God. Simon goes, well then, let's go with the whole body. That's Simon. Here's a bunch of guys in a boat. Jesus is walking across water. They see him coming and Simon's the one who goes, well, I'm not just gonna sit here. Goes up to the edge and says, call me and let me come out. And people give a hard time to Simon because he fell into the waters. But last time I checked, he's the only one who got out of the boat. Simon was a leader. He was influential. When he chose to do something, they followed. Jesus calls influential people, people who have connections, people who have leadership skills. He calls them. And he takes a guy like Simon that it seems is flooded with a lot of selfish ambition and turns them into a selfless servant. He would call him Simon when he was behaving poorly. He called him Peter, which means Petros. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter wasn't perfect. He rejected Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. One time bowing to the pressure of just a little schoolgirl. Wept in a boat and Jesus came to the beach and said, Simon, do you love me? You know I love you. Do you love me? You know I love you. Do you love me? You asked me three times. And Jesus restored that life. But Peter was a wave of emotions. One time excited and the next time walking away. He was fired up on Sunday morning and Tuesday he was off doing something else. But Jesus works with guys like that. Jesus works with girls like that. And he leverages their influence for their potential. But Peter would later write, be sober in spirit, be watchful. The devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. James, I put up a thunderstorm. James was a son of thunder, the son of Zebedee, who seems to be a wealthy business owner, for he had a fishing business. And James and John, the two brothers, would work in it. James seems to come off as a supervisor in scripture. He seems to be constantly going, hey, we need to have this, or we need to get this together. There was an entitlement to him. One time he even approached Jesus and said, we would like to sit beside you in your kingdom. And Jesus said, can you drink the cup of wrath that I'm gonna drink? And James said, yes, we can. No, they couldn't. It was James when the Samaritans mocked Jesus. He, go, he came up with a plan. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Let's just wipe them out. James is the guy you want on your team. He's the one who might supervise and make sure things are good but he was a man of confidence, even confrontation. It seems he has a sense of pride, but he would later write, one of the most shepherding hearts ever, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. John, his younger brother, in that first inner circle was the heart of the group. There was an ambitiousness to him too. He came with mom one time to say, Jesus, can we be the greatest? But he learned humility. He was a man of conviction. He writes in the first, second, and third epistle of John, you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and you deceive yourself. He was black and white. Don't tell me this and then do this. He was a man of conviction. But I put an island, for that's where he ended his ministry, on the island of Patmos. Jesus trusted John. He entrusted John with his mother, on the cross, he said, John, take care of my mom. And it was John that Jesus revealed the book of Revelation to. John was a reliable man that had ambition that Jesus leveraged in humility. The, third, the second grouping was Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Mark tells us. Andrew is kind of a man's man. We see him in scripture, always bringing people to Jesus, kind of in the quiet, not very prominent guy, but Jesus would call him out from behind the scenes. Most specifically, his quiet nature, if you will, enabled him to see people others didn't see. Did you know that it was Andrew who found the boy with loaves and fishes and said, Jesus, here's one. 
Andrew was constantly seen bringing people to Jesus. You might say, God only wants to call the Peters or maybe the James and supervisors, but he even calls the quiet ones who are just simply ready to bring a friend to church and meet and hear about Jesus. Scripture really seems to show Andrew and Philip together a lot. I think they were close friends, even though Andrew was Peter's little brother. Andrew came up with solutions, saw people through the eyes of empathy. And it was Andrew and Philip who went to tell Jesus there were a group of Greeks that wanted to hear about him. Philip, he was the administrator the bookkeeper, if you will. It was when they were at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus appealed to the treasurer, it seems, of the group, and he said, Philip, how much money do we got, basically? And Philip said, 200 denarii. It's not as sufficient for enough to have even a little. Philip, a little bit of a half glass. Do you know any half glass people? A little bit like, you know, hey, 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 we all need these creative type Peters, but we gotta have some reality in this place too. We need administration and we need things to go. And there was a reality to fill. God understands there needs to be some accountants for all these great ideas. He was a man of detail. He was a man of facts. But he went from a famine mindset to meeting Jesus. And he grew into an abundance mindset. God calls the bookkeepers. God calls the administrators. It's not just the people under the lights. It's the people who work hard behind the scenes. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, was the scholar of the group. We meet him in scripture. When the men come to him and they say, we have found the Messiah, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? We found the guy who's gonna change the world. Where's he from? Sellersville. Can anything good come from Sellersville? Yes, the good things come from Sellersville. If you have a Sellersville address, we'd love to have you today. But the idea was, was Nazareth? How does he know? Nathaniel was a scholar. He was known for reading the Torah. In fact, Jesus said, I saw you under the tree. There he is, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel, Bartholomew, the scholar, the questioner, a man of integrity and devotion in the readings of the scripture. God calls the questioners and turns them into the apologists. Men like Lee Strobel who go, I'm not, I, gotta, I can't believe this Bible and begins to study it from his lawyer eyes and finds the God of the Bible and writes books like a case for Christ that change the world. God calls the scholars and turns them from questioners to apologists. This, this third group was an interesting group. It was Matthew, Thomas, and James of Alphaeus, Mark tells us. Matthew, the rebel. You ever feel like your past is too dark for Jesus to want you? He had a dark past. He rejected his own people. He walked his own road. He was judged. He was a misfit. And because of it, when Jesus called him, he seems to be one of the most evangelistic of all of them. In fact, wrote the gospel of Matthew predominantly out of the eyes of evangelism. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. Matthew went from feeling like a misfit to being chosen by Jesus and went out to find all the rebels, all the ones who don't look so pretty, all the ones that might feel like they're too dirty to be around Jesus, and he would minister to them. In fact, they were all at his house when Jesus came to sit with him. Jesus is in the business of taking the rejected, the judged, and making them feel accepted. Now, you're gonna laugh when you see my image of Thomas, but let me explain it, because I think Thomas takes a beating sometimes for being the disciple that says, unless I see the holes in his hands, I won't believe. This is how I picture Thomas. Don't laugh too hard. Why? Dog owners listen in. Non-dog owners listen in. When you understand the loyalty of a dog to its owner, you'll get what I'm talking about. In scripture, we hear Thomas When Jesus says, I have to go, he goes, where where are you going to go? And how will we know the way then? It's as if Thomas was driven by a leash, if you will. I just want to be next to you. And Jesus said, I need to go to Jerusalem. And do you know what scripture says Thomas said? Knowing Jerusalem was the place he would die, they want to kill you in Jerusalem. Thomas says this, I guess let's go die with him. Thomas was so loyal 
to his master. So loyal that if it even meant dying, he said, let's go. I truly believe Thomas was so crushed by his death that he wasn't willing to get himself all excited. Because if you've ever seen a dog waiting for its owner to come home, it's got a face of, I wonder when he's going to come. And when he comes, it's... <laughs> Thomas was so loyal to Jesus. James of Alphaeus, there is nothing said about him. Just in case you think God doesn't see even the most obscure ones, there's a lesson in the fact that he called James of Alphaeus. Even though nothing is said about him, Jesus gave him prominence of all time. And the final group was Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. Thaddeus, also called Jude of James, a roller coaster of excitement. He wants everybody to come to Jesus. It seems like he was more youthful. Thaddeus was the one, Jude of James. Why are you not going to reveal yourself to everyone? Not just the whole world. Just like I say, he just asked question after question after question. They say, they say, if you're parenting a boy who asks a lot of questions, you're most likely getting a leader. You're parenting a little girl. I got questions. I got questions. You got a little leader there. Thaddeus was a future leader. Simon the Zealot was a nationalist. Zealots were known for wanting to overtake the government. They were extremely passionate and they were willing to go even into lawless means to overtake these terrible Romans so that the Jews could take their prominence. And it was many times I'm sure that he did not like hearing submit to the government or give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But Jesus can take a nationalist and make him seek after a greater kingdom than any earthly kingdom. And then Judas Iscariot, known for the one who sang, the one whom I kiss. Proverbs 16, four says, the Lord has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss, filled with such remorse, he would take his life, being replaced by Matthias, which means gift of Yahweh. He was selected by Lot, chosen to be the 12th. The Navy SEALs have a term called the 20 times factor. They believe that with the proper training and pushing and pressing and demanding, that every individual is capable of 20 times more than they think they can. In fact, one Navy SEAL writes, everyone is capable of accomplishing at least 20 times what they perceive themselves capable of accomplishing. Jesus was able to take a group of fishermen, tax collectors, misfits, rebels, nationalists, enthusiastic immaturity, and change the world. They would go out and share the gospel. They would go out and send to the world. And one of the most affirming parts of the fact that we know Jesus Christ was real was because of the message that they were willing to leave and go out and do and die for. Church history tells us about these apostles. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Bartholomew was flogged to death by a whip in Asia Minor. Matthew was impaled by spears in Ethiopia. James, son of Alphaeus, was thrown off a wall and clubbed to death. Church history says Jude was crucified by Magi in Persia. John died in exile on the island of Patmos. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Philip was hung by iron hooks upside down. Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India. James beheaded in Palestine. Scripture says this in 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. As I was preparing this message, I asked one of my kids, I said, hey, do you think you would have been chosen if you were walking the earth at that time by Jesus? You think you would have been chosen? They thought for a minute and they said, well, I mean, maybe those guys weren't special, right? I said, exactly. Those guys weren't special. But church... Ecclesia, called out ones, you can say, child of God, that you've been chosen. 
you can say that too. I, 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 I can? You've been chosen. I, you've been chosen. You've been chosen. What? What are you talking about? Scripture tells you. In Ephesians, it says this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The apostle Paul continues to the church of Ephesus. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. What? He predestined us? The doctrine of predestination is not some man-made contrived department in a theological school. It's in the very word of God that he predestined us. He chose us. When? When I was like pretty good in like third grade? No, before the foundation of the world. Why? Well, I hadn't even done anything yet. Exactly. He moved first. And the doctrine of predestination is difficult. And we do need to come at it with grace. And we need to come at it not in a combative spirit. Because it's difficult. It's like one, one person said, it's like, it's like a piano player playing a song. Dun, 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 and they get to the last note and they don't play it. Dun, 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 dun. To end it, they don't do the dun. It's just dun, 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 dun. Come on, finish it. And there's some things we won't know fully till heaven that God in his sovereign election chose his children and that yes, man has a will that receives him. How does that play together so beautifully? We don't fully grasp and because of that, we're led to have questions. But scripture finishes the song in so many areas. But within those questions, you hear a lot of oh, great metaphors and illustrations. Some say, well, well, I mean, well, why would he choose some and, 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 and not everybody? And, and you'll hear like, it's like somebody walked into a crowd and they had hundreds of dollars and they chose to give it to some just based on their own goodwill. Here's some, here's some, here's some. In him, Ephesians 1.11 says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, what if the other people get jealous? Well, they didn't deserve it. He simply out of his own good grace gave it out. Well, I, I, I struggle with that. Some say I'm, I'm, I'm struggling because like, like that means like if some were chosen, some were not. And then you'll hear illustrations like it's more like, like everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's headed to hell. Nobody deserves the grace of God. Nobody deserves to be chosen. And in God's mercy, it was like everybody was headed off the cliff into the lake of fire and he chose those whom he chose to have mercy to. Nobody deserved it. We were all sinners. Some say, but yeah, but doesn't, doesn't it have, doesn't, don't we have a choice we have to make? I mean, isn't something my, my role and they'll come up with maybe, maybe, maybe God looked down the tunnel of time and he looked down the tunnel of time and he saw that one day Chris Eller would come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that's how he sovereignly elected. And then, then we received it. But here's my problem with that. John 6, 4 says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I looked up no one in the Greek. Here's what it means. No one. Not some, not those who are extra smart, not those who are awesome. No one can come to me unless the father draws him. God moves first while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Some say it's like a man drowning then. It's drowning, he's going under, he's got no chance, he's gonna die. And God in his grace throws a life raft and it goes right up to his hand. And in his last grasp, he grabs hold of it. My problem with that though is, that means I could go and say, hi, who's the one who grabbed the raft? Scripture says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. We were dead in our sins, we're reminded in Romans. Have you ever looked at a dead man? Do you know what he's capable of doing? Nothing. 
John Piper says it's like we're full of motion, like the leaves falling from a tree in a backyard. But we're dead. And God in his infinite mercy before the foundations of the world chose, predestined some to come to him. And how we work that together is not something that we have a problem with. We struggle with the implications. Should I even evangelize then? Of course you should. You know the end of that song. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples. You mean God chose me? If I'm a child of God, God has been providentially working in my life to this point. And I'll never fully know what was man's responsibility and mixed with God's sovereignty. I'll never, I'll never fully know, and I'm not to argue, I'm not to fight about it. But wow, that's amazing. Pastor John Adams, our executive pastor, said, he goes, Chris, when I came to that spot in my life where I realized that God chose me, it was one of the motivators to going into full-time ministry. It became a thing that the crowd does to, oh my word, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I like to say, God wrote all the stories. He walked down the library. He saw the book of Chris Heller that he wrote and he picked it out. He picked it up. I got this from a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Picked it out, picked it up. And he went to the register and paid for it with his life. You've been picked out, picked up, and paid for. Child of God, what a privilege we have. And it is to bring us great joy. But it's to motivate us. If we've been chosen, it's not to sit and watch. It's to get in the game. It's to get in the game. And it's to go out into all the world. It's to share the gospel. It's to show the love of Jesus Christ. Why me, Lord? You'll never fully answer. Oh, but what a day of gratitude I pray you will have. And maybe you're here today because the Lord is drawing you to himself. And maybe it's the day where you believe as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us that you loved us before the foundation of the world, those who you called and chosen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And although we may never rectify on this side of eternity, your sovereign election and our response, may every child of God relish in the fact that before the earth was created, before we were in our mother's womb, the God of the universe said, them, I choose them. May we be filled with gratitude, incredible humility, and may we do the work of an apostle. You've sent us. May we get in the game. In Jesus' name, amen.